Good evening, friends. We will have uh, a little bit more explanation about Activist San Diego at the end of our program. So I wanted to just make a few brief remarks. Uh, first, I wanted to invite Mansoor to come up for a minute. Mansoor has been very kind, and his work for KPFK Pacifica has been very, very important. And he, every time we have a really important person speaking here in San Diego, he comes all the way from LA to tape and to do all the work. So he just wants to briefly explain to you um, what is happening at, at Pacifica Radio. Hi, I'll be very brief. I have a petition going around that, you know, the Excellency Radio from Tijuana's, it's on the same bandwidth as KPFK. That's why you're not getting KPFK signal. I have a signature, a petition for that one to get rid of the the uh, radio station and two to get a repeater for San Diego. So see me or we get the flyer going on. Was that good? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Those of us who are familiar with Pacifica Radio know that it's our lifeline to uh, sanity and we need to do everything that we can to support them and to uh, get more people to listen. I wanted to also mention that Michael Berenti's book is here tonight for sale for signing and we give we are selling it at a very special price of ten dollars so the culture struggle which is the topic of our discussion tonight and this is Michael Parenti's latest book um, I need to tell you something about Michael Parenti. He is an internationally known, award-winning author and lecturer. He's one of the nation's leading progressive political analysts. His highly informative and entertaining books and talks have reached a wide range of audiences in North America and abroad. Michael Parenti received his PhD in political science from Yale he taught at many colleges and universities in the United States and abroad. He's won numerous awards. He serves on the board of judges for Project Censored, which is one of our favorite organizations, and many other advisory boards, including the New Political Science and Nature Society and Thought. He's the author of 19 books. Some of these books are Super Patriotism, the Assassination of Julius Caesar, The Terrorism Trap, Democracy for the Few, To Kill a Nation, History as Mystery. The most recent book is Culture Struggle. This is a 2006 book that is available to us tonight. 
and he'll be happy to sign it for you. The book is about the cultural imperialism, cultural relativism, racism, and gender oppression. This book treats culture as a component of social power and political struggle in the United States and elsewhere. There are some 250 articles that Michael has written that appeared in scholarly journals and, and periodicals, and some of his writings have been translated into 17 languages. Cornell West said this about Michael. Michael Parenti is a towering prophetic voice in American life. We need him now more than ever. And on Aurora Online, they said, he's a prolific author, a charismatic speaker, and a regular guest on radio and television talk shows. Parenti communicates his message in an accessible, provocative, and historically informed style that is unrivaled among fellow progressive activists and thinkers. And we know that the academics in general don't really speak up very much. Michael, in his own words, reminds us that everybody's job is to speak up. He says, here at home and throughout the world, people are fighting back against forces of wealth, privilege, and militarism. Some because they have no choice, and others because they, they choose, because they would choose no other course but the one that leads to peace and justice. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Michael Parenti. Thank you, it's very nice to be here. Uh, I'm actually not going to talk about the, the culture struggle. Uh, uh, some, some of the material in there I will be uh, addressing myself to. The, bo the book actually uh, deals with the whole idea of how you look at culture. How do we define culture? Uh, and culture is often l looked at, I'll say a few words about the book because it, it, it entrees into what else I want to say here. Culture is often looked at in academia, at least say among anthropologists, as the accretion, the accumulation of past solutions and practices and traditions and things of that sort. Um, what I, what I uh, argue in the book, which, by the way, the book has, has the virtue of brevity. It's only 140 pages, but it's, I, I think it's full of a lot of good examples and arguments and such, uh, even if I got to say so myself. What I, what I uh, argue is that um, uh, culture, in fact, is a very uh, indeterminate thing. It's subject to change, and it's a highly politically charged thing. Um, culture, um, for instance, when somebody says, you should respect our culture, um, that assumes that everybody in that culture is happy with that culture. You know, uh, do, do you respect a culture where, uh, well, let's say, 13-year-old girls are, in effect, sold into uh, marital sexual slavery, or, or where one is subjected to uh, enforced clitoridectomy, or um, where indentured labor 
some other culture where indentured labor is used in a certain way, or this culture, all the things that we find that are wrong, where, mi where militaristic ventures are glorified and, uh, uh, and, and American messianic supremism is, is propagated and all that. So in fact, the culture is not a cohesive entity that a people have. Uh, it, uh, some parts of it benefit some people more, and, and, and some parts of the culture may even be opposed by people within that culture. So your experience is culture, <coughs> culture may permeate all your, our experiences, but it's not the sum total of our experiences. We can actually transcend culture. Because I, I come into this problem of uh, we don't want to be cultural imperialists. We don't want to impose our culture on other people. But we don't want to actually even be cultural relativists. Because cultural relativism gets us to this position I'm just talking about, which is, well, nobody can judge anybody else's culture. It's like a postmodernist idea, which is uh, um, we can't judge anybody else to judge, uh, because, because your judgments are always themselves culturally defined. So, um, so you just be imposing your views on other people. Um, so how do you get out of that uh, 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 quandary? And I, 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 I do it two ways. One is this argument I just gave you, is that one is that, uh, in fact, culture not, is not an absolutely encompassing thing, that people can actually stand outside their own culture to some degree and criticize things in it which means that there are human feelings and human rights that transcend culture. And two, there's absolute objective evidence of that concept in a remarkable document, which was first, the first parts of with, which were put together in um, 1948. It's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where by today, with all the different codicils and additions, about 110 or 120 countries sign on to this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's 120 countries of different nationalities, languages, histories, ethnicities, temperaments, and yet they sign on and agree that there are human rights that transcend culture. There are human perceptions that transcend culture. That's how, that's how you might be able to read a Persian poem or story and resonate and feel it. Uh, that was written, uh, 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 let's say, you know, 400 years ago. That's how you're able to read Goethe or Shakespeare. Different culture, different time, different this, and yet there are human, you, we may miss something, there are things we may not get, there are things lost in the translation. But you get the basic, you can get the basic human, human thing there. So that's, that's what the book deals with. And some of that I would treat tonight by talking about um, some things about race, gender, and class, how to think about class, and then relating that to how these Political-cultural things relate to present-day present-day situation we face. That's the other thing I, I stress in the book about culture. It's a highly political. It's a politically 
A culture just doesn't innocently grow up. Much of it is manipulated by the politically dominant forces, and that's why culture is often a class defined, that is defined by class power, not just by class experience. Now there's nothing wrong with treating class, race, gender, and culture, and other such things as distinct from each other. In many respects they are. The mistake is to consider them unconnected, that they're always mutually exclusive, that if this thing has to do with race then it doesn't have anything to do with, with, uh, with class, or if it has to do with gender then it's, then it's a, a distinct. Now, now, by the way, there are sometimes distinct concerns, life and death concerns, which might be, might at the core have a purely racial or gender-fixed uh, problem to them. Uh, but, but, but much, much of our, our, our race, gender, class, or cultural experience is linked to each other. They're interrelated and may be part of the same overall systemic dynamic. Let's take class, because I do think it's the crucial factor regarding certain issues, not all issues. There are two ways of looking at class. Not class, class as such is not, and I'll tell you why, but class power is a cru the crucial factor. It's very crucial for anybody who uh, wants to urge people onward in their perceptions and criticisms in this society. Because in this society, class and class power are just about almost blotted out. You can show people a whole film about class power and they'll say, oh, I didn't see that. No, oh yeah, oh, now that you mentioned it or something. It's amazing how, how, how this will happen. That Americans, and, and, and Amer I'm talking about American intellectuals are almost trained not to talk about class. So I want to talk about class because I have, still haven't been housebroken on this <laughs> issue. There's two ways of looking at class. You can look at it as a demographic um, trait relating to lifestyle, income, status, you know, upper middle, lower middle, upper upper, lower class, that sort of thing. There's another way of looking at class. That's not just the demographic uh, terminology. And that is looking at class as a relationship having to do with political economic power. And it's an interrelationship. So there's no such, there's, there's no such thing as a class except in relationship to another class. So you can't have lords of the manor unless you have serfs. You can't have slaveholders unless you have slaves, to take the earliest of class societies. You can't have owners and bosses unless you have workers. That they define each other in a relationship. And you can't have equality of different classes. You can hope for equality of gender, I'm not saying we have it, but you can, you, can, you can conceptualize a society in which men and women could be equal, and we're struggling for that. You can conceptualize a society where people of different ethnic groups, African-American, La uh, Latino, 
Euro-American, all the various ethnic, ethnic groups, Euro-American, Asian-American, so you can, you can conceptualize a society where all those people could live in equality and peace and mutual respect. I'm, again, I'm not saying we've achieved that, but we're struggling for those things. But you can't do that with class. By definition, you can't say, we'll have a, a class, we'll have a, a society where the rich capitalists and the workers are equal together, which is what they tell us we do have already. You see, that's what they say. Oh, we're all just regular old Americans. You, me, Rupert Murdoch, uh, David Rockefeller, Bill Gates, and all that. Um, because, you see, in, 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 the interrelationship in classes, not only do they define each other, but the interrelation, it's, it's an inherently unequal relationship by definition. And the inequality comes from its relationship to a third set of factors, um, to a third factor, I mean, and that is the means of production, the, the mines, the factories, the railroads, the media, the the, the this, the that, the companies, the corporations. What's the relationship to the wealth of the nation? To who controls the wealth of the nation? One group owns all those means of production, distribution, and accumulation of capital. And the other group has only one thing to sell in that market with. Oh, so many things are being sold. And that's their human labor. I got to get a job, that's called. It has nothing but its labor, and it gets back much less than it produces. But again, by definition. As a boss, there's only one reason I'm going to hire you, is so that I can make money off your labor. And the way I make money off your labor is by paying you less than the value you produce for me. I mean, unless you're the boss's son-in-law or something, and you're a, when a nitwit and he can't get a job anywhere else, you bring him in, give him a little sinecure job. But, but normally, normally, the only way, uh, the only way I'm going to hire you is because I can make money off your labor. So I remember doing uh, strike support work uh, for, for United Auto Workers in Carbondale, Illinois, in an in a, in a earlier lifetime. Um, <coughs> back in 69, and I remember one of the workers saying, he was African-American auto worker, and he said, either you own the mother or you work for it. That was his rule. Either you own the mother or you work for it. He used a somewhat longer word than mother, but, but that's what it was. So, now you can say, I mean, that isn't the only area where your value has been it gets expropriated. You can say, well, then I'm not exploited in this society because I work for a nonprofit. Nobody's making money off my. No, they get you. They can get you still as a, not only as a worker but as a taxpayer, and just as a citizen. Um, you have to pay taxes. Uh, you get very little back for those taxes. Other people get much more off those taxes. In democracy, for the few, I spend a lot of time explaining. Where does public policy money go? Who really, who gets it, you know? 
uh, those people who keep lecturing you, don't, don't go to the government looking for a handout. They got, they got their hands in our pockets. They got their hands in the public treasury up to their elbows, up to their shoulders. You know, Halliburton, Bechtel telling us, uh, don't you go to the government for this or that. They, they can't do anything without first getting, getting money from the government, to get, getting subsidized, getting their seed capital, getting equity capital. They're defense industries where the equity, where the, where the Pentagon builds them, gives them the goddamn land and builds the factory for them uh, to, go, to go build some kind of missile or jet or some other thing like that. So they're constantly blackmailing and extorting from us. And there's a perpetual upward redistribution from the worker to the owner, from the citizen to the invest, private investor. The one thing that keeps private capital accumulation going is public subsidies. The one thing that keeps capitalism going is socialism. Socialism always comes in to bail them out. When Illinois Bank was going to go under, the Congress ran in there and voted them how much money. When Chrysler was going to go under, remember Lee Iacocco? Lee Iacocco, the captain of industry, he took over Chrysler and he pulled it up off the, off the edge of bankruptcy and he brought it up there to be a profitable. He was a big hot, some of you remember him. Uh, I even see some of the younger people nodding. Well, that's good. Um, <laughs> No, it's good to know there's at least some continuity of information and uh, political experience. Yeah, what they don't tell you is that, is that this guy got from the Pentagon, he got billions of dollars in bail. Chrysler got these contracts on tanks and army trucks and all that. That's what pulled them out. In other words, you pulled them out. You should be on the cover of uh, Forbes or wherever it is and says, here it is, look, uh, Mabel Smith works uh, here and there pays these extraordinary extortionary taxes and you know the taxes you pay. Do you, do you all remember, do you, you can remember that far back, you remember that very first paycheck you ever got in your life? Remember when you got that check and you said, there must be some mistake here. This is supposed to be for two weeks but it looks like it's only for one week. And they say, no, no, hey, look on the other side. See, we took off for that, took off that, 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 that. Um, so you're exploited even if you work for a nonprofit, okay? So what we're talking about here is not just class, not upper middle, middle, middle class, uh, professional class, blue collar, white collar, inner city, the elderly, the seniors. We don't even want to use class at times, so we make up all these other terms, you know. Um, we're talking about class power also. Wealth and poverty do not just happen to coexist. They are dynamically interrelated. Wealth creates poverty. And the labor of the poor create the wealth. You can't have rich people without having poor people. Slave owners couldn't live in that utter opulence that they lived on their big plantations and all that if they didn't have slaves who were working. Working from dawn to dusk and even after nightfall and with lights, they'd have other chores they'd have to be doing, mending fences or digging a ditch or canal, something at night. They'd work them right into the night, uh, work them every day, grudgingly, grudgingly sometimes giving them uh, a few days off on Christmas or a Sunday off now and then. Um, 
Lords could not live to the manner born without exploiting the serfs. Now, a slave and a serf, you can see where they're getting exploited. If a serf plants a crop and works it day and night, and then he's got to give half of this to the Lord, who doesn't do anything. Who doesn't do anything except go to cockfights or dogfights, uh, ride horses, uh, drink and wenching and having a jolly old time. That's the guy you're working for. And um, you know you're exploited when you've got to give him half of it. The worker doesn't quite know that because the exploitation is taken off very silently. It's in, as Marx pointed out, every motion of the machine or any working at the, at, in the office. It doesn't have to be factory work. Um, some part of that, some part of the value you're producing is being taken off. It's estimated that the average worker works for herself or himself from 9 in the morning till about 11 a.m. And then after that, you're working for your boss. Um, okay. Maybe it's a little late. I don't want you feeling too bad. You're, maybe it's... Maybe it's as late as noon, I don't know. Uh, the colonizer cannot gather wealth without exploiting and impoverishing the colonies. By the way, that's what empires are about. Empires are about making money. That's why people go to far off places. That's why they've been doing this for thousands of years, literally thousands of years. You go to the place not because you just want to put the flag in there or because you, you want your nation to have some kind of glory. You go because you want to make money off the labor and the resources that are in that country. That's, that's what empire is about. Empire is about the ruling elements in one country expro expropriating the land, the labor, the natural resources, the wealth that's in the ground, the minerals, the gold, the iron, copper, tin, whatever it might be, and the markets of another country. And what that does, when you keep working on people and you keep taking the stuff out, it leaves them poor. It leaves them very poor. So the third world is not underdeveloped. I never did understand that term, underdeveloped. And it's not developing. They're calling them the developing nations. That accepts underdevelopment as an original condition. It's maldeveloped. It's overexploited. These countries are poor because they've been ripped off for four, five, six hundred years. Um, let's, take race, let's take racism. Let's move to that. Discussions on racism usually fix on attitudes. Bill Clinton, you remember in his last year, he decided he was going to deal with racism in America. And what did he do? He had these highly publicized things. He sat down with a white family here and a black family here. And, and let's just talk, folks, like, like, like this is where the problem is at. Um, and some of the problem is there. People feel this bad way, and we've got to cleanse their hearts and minds. But we should also keep in mind the larger system of power and interest that sustains racist attitudes. That's why we should speak not only of attitudinal racism, but of institutional and systemic racism. That is, um, an institution can be racist in effect, even if its officers claim no such racism in intent. Um, now, when you talk about the overweening power and accumulation of power, 
in, um, in this society, which is emblematic of capitalism, invariably someone is quick to come in in a sentimental tone and say, but what about the small individual entrepreneur who has an idea and starts a business and creates something and employs some people and, uh, and, uh, and creates a product that's useful or a service that's useful. What about them? Don't they, aren't they of some value? And I always said, usually said in this kind of sing-song voice like that, sentimental, and I always say, yeah, but we're not talking about them. We're not talking about mom and pop enterprises. We're not talking about small businesses. Um, we're talking about these giant multinational concentrations of wealth and power. The small businesses are like, el are like uh, squirrels dancing among the elephants. And squirrels dancing among elephants have a very low life expectancy. <laughs> And it's about, it's about, what is it, four or five hundred small businesses go under every week. And unlike uh, uh, the Bank of Illinois, unlike Chrysler, unlike some of the others, when they go under, they go, well, you're out, you're on your own. You, you go broke on your own, you go into business on your own. Uh, Congress doesn't come rushing in multi-billion dollar subsidies to save you because uh, they're afraid that if you go down, it's going to be a suction and it's going to take a lot of other things and the whole big corporate economy may start coming down. You just go down, you're on your own. And does, do small businesses, are they of any value? They're of great value. They're great, of great value. They create most of the jobs in this society. If you look over the last 20 years, at the Fortune 500, the big corporations, between downsizing and outsourcing and cutting back and, and, um, and all the other stuff, you, you add that in against whatever new things they've started, and the net gain in jobs is about zero. Almost all job growth comes from small and middle-level businesses and the public sector. Um, but that's not where the power is. That's not who's shaping the society and the culture and everything else like that. Um, now for modern day capitalist society, racism and sexism have been very functional. And if they weren't functional, you can bet they would have been gone a long time ago or a lot more of it would have been gone, a lot quicker, a lot easier. People would not have to die. Women would not have had to fight for 90 years to get the vote. African Americans would not have to risk lynchings and death and whatever else to, to, to get some modicum of security um, if it wasn't so functional. First of all, employers have always desired a surplus workforce. When there's full employment, when jobs are looking for workers rather than workers looking for jobs, then wages tend to go up. When wages go up, that cuts into my profits. See, every dollar I gotta spend on stupid thing like wage increases or health care or occupational safety or environmental protection, every dollar I gotta spend on stupid 
ridiculous things like that is one less dollar for me. And I really don't like that if I'm a boss or owner or plutocrat. <clears throat> Conversely, when workers are in superabundant supply in an overcrowded job market, then wages can be kept down. Now, for generations, women, children, immigrants, and ethnic minorities who have suffered certain disadvantages and have very limited job opportunities serve as a reserve army of labor. They're a super exploited labor pool that increases the competition for jobs and further depresses wages. It lowers the floor of wages. I mean, one of the things that made um, African Americans employable in certain kind of service jobs was their willingness to take really substandard wages, because that's all they could get. One of the things that made women employable, and the reason bosses were interested in having women come work in these shops and all, was again, out of, not their willingness, willingness is the wrong word, out of necessity it becomes their willingness uh, to work at this wage. So a super exploited reserve group or, or such kind is, is, is very functional in helping to depress and keep down wages and increase that profit of mar that margin of profit. Racism and sexism also serve class power as a divisive force. They help keep the working class fragmented, disorganized, fighting each other for crumbs rather than concerting for a larger slice of the pie. And the most successful unions have been the ones like United Auto Workers and others, machinists, others, that have overcome the racism in their ranks and get black and white and whatever other groups together so that they could work with unity and have an effective impact. Um, and the same with, with sexism, you know. Busy beating your wife instead of organizing to beat your boss, which is what you really should be doing, and directing your anger and energies toward. Um, economic elites, by the way, are very aware of this, and they, um, they consciously discourage working class unity and incite inter-ethnic competition. This is as old as Plato and Aristotle. There's a passage in Aristotle's Politics in Book One where he, he advises the slaveholder. He says, ancient Greece was a slave society. He says, if you have a work crew of slaves, make sure they're of different nationalities and they can't speak each other lang other's language. I mean, there it right is there in that great, marvelous book of political philosophy that, that we all read. What's happening to the sound of this? Is it, is it still on? Oh, there it is. Is that? Uh, well, what happens is you start to compensate and using your voice to reach. Boy, these crappy. Someday, someday I'm going to speak someplace where they've mastered the mysteries of sound. Um, In the late 19th century, early 20th century, work crews in mines and factories also um, had the same problem, namely that they could not, um, <clears throat> or they would deliberately mix the nationalities. They'd have a Hungarian, a Pole, an Italian, um, uh, whoever else, all these different immigrant groups, working them, deliberately mixing them up 
so that they did not get along or they did not understand each other and 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 that was um, what what's happened to it Yeah, is that better? Right. Oh, when I move that, is yeah. that is that it's got to be up up yeah. as far? Is that on now? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I want to point out that racism has to be taught to people. That in 1600s in America, you had indentured servants, Native American Indians. They were called Indians mistakenly and Africans, African slaves here, runaway slaves, they would actually form communities, all three groups. They often, they often were working under the same miserable conditions and they developed friendships. They um, even, God forbid, they not only fraternized, they even intermarried. Um, so what you had to do was teach people to be apart and to be separate, drive these wedges and put little pictures in their heads of fear and division. Um, to illustrate how culture is used as an instrument of social control, there we are, I finally got it. it but I dare not move a, ha a quarter of an inch away. <laughs> anyway. um, let's look at the political scene in this country a little more closely right now. Because what we're seeing is a, a plutocratic resurgence, a, a reactionary force that's in power right this time. They're not conservatives, they are reactionary. A conservative is someone who resists any kind of social advancement and social change because he wants to maintain his, conserve his existing privileges. A reactionary is someone who wants to roll it back and make things uh, roll back the existing uh, egalitarian advances and victories that everyone and that's their outspoken um, if slightly disguised goal to get us back to 1890. Um, <clears throat> now the conservative class uses culture as an instrument of social control. The conservative plutocracy, plutocracy means ruled by the wealthy, is keenly aware that it's vulnerable on class issues. After all, its class agenda really only uh, serves the interests of about, really, 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 ultimately, about a fraction of 1% of the entire population. Its class agenda is diametrically opposed to the needs and interests of the vast majority of the people in this society. People in uh, George Bush Sr.'s presidential campaign, not Junior, not, not George W. Bush, but Herbert Walker, George Herbert Walker Bush back then, when he was running for the presidency against Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts, remember that, that miserable performance by Dukakis? Um, they said, I think he, Lee Atwater said it too, now this is 20 years ago, he said, if Dukakis had played the class card, we would have lost. But he never did. The Democrats are terrified of the prospect of, of playing the class card. Because their greatest fear is 
being, being found too far out left. So they're always sucking up to the middle, to the right, and moving in. They're always saying, you see them on, on those talk shows, so, well, we don't differ that much. Well, well, we agree, really. We really have a lot of agreement here, blah, blah, blah. You never see the reactionary saying that. He's never saying, oh, oh, we agree. Oh, 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 that sort of thing. Oh, I'm on your side. I'm real, we're really on the same side. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Dukakis couldn't done that. He didn't do that. He spent, he spent the whole goddamn campaign talking about his leadership abilities. I believe in leadership. I'm going to bring leadership. And everybody's saying, well, you talk about what's on everybody's mind, the issues, the problems we're facing and all that. So he never played the class card. Meanwhile, the Republicans played the Willie Horton card, soft on crime. They played the Gulf War card. They played the abortion card. Not the Gulf War, that started later on, but they, they would play the, the threat of terrorism card. They were playing all that stuff back then, too. The reactionaries, they hit on two tactics. The first one is to, con to conjure up alternative issues, which are sometimes called cultural issues. Oh, cultural issues are very important in this election. I even saw a Sunday talk show once. It was with William Buckley and about three or four of his uh, uh, right-wing cohorts. And they were sitting there, and they were very consciously saying that conservatives have to explore and bring forth cultural issues that resonate with the people and move away from these limited bread and butter issues. Now, if you decode that, they're saying, we don't have a chance on class, really, if we really uh, tell people what we want to do to them. We want to cut your wages. We want to cut back on your human services. We don't want to give you health insurance, uh, this and that. Uh, but we do have a chance if we get them involved and concerned and worried about feminism, the gays, uh, 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 the blacks getting everything, and you're a poor, hardworking white guy, you never get anything, um, and all that sort of thing. And so they've been doing that now for a couple of decades, or about three decades, playing on these issues. One big one is a, a godsend in the last election was gay marriage. I mean, that was just throwing them raw meat. Oh, thank God, manna from heaven. There it was, keeping people distracted and up in arms about denying rights to other people. Because gay marriage will undermine the very fabric and sacredness of marriage and destroy it as an institution, as is happening right now in Massachusetts, correct, which has legal gay marriage. And don't you see the whole institution of marriage is just falling apart? <laughs> Why would you want to get married anymore if queers can get married too? I mean, it's just not, doesn't happen. It's outrageous. It's, it feels all filthy and wrong. I'm not going to get married, baby. <laughs> don't give me that argument, sweetheart. <laughs> Flag burning. There's another burning issue. Congress, the U.S. Senate, right, just a few months ago, almost passed a resolution to start the constitutional amendment process to make desecration of the flag a felony, put it in the Constitution. And that's an urgent issue there again. I mean, most of my clothes are singed by these flag burners. I can't walk down the street without flag burners doing it. 
I was at the airport and some guy was burning a flag and almost killed several of us, right? Don't you live in constant terror and fear of these flag burners all over the place? I mean, this is an issue that we have to wake up America about. The importance of it is something. Well, abortion, that, that is an important and a real issue. Do you know? But there's a, that's a perfect, that is the perfect example of the manipulative agenda that is being used. If anybody says, oh, what, do you got a conspiracy theory? You think they really deliberately propagate these issues and all that, you know? I say, okay, they don't really deliberately propagate these issues. They just seem to propagate these issues continually, incessantly, without relief, okay? Now, whether they intend to or whether they do it in a fit of absent-mindedness, you, you choose, you choose. Um, but 30 years ago, 30 years ago, conservatives and right-wingers were for abortion. Ronald Reagan signed one of the most liberal abortion laws. You're living in the state where it happened. George Herbert Walker Bush Sr., George I, when he was in Congress, voted for an abortion bill. It was only later on when they began realizing that they could use this issue that, um, you know, their arguments then were that the poor have too many kids, they're on welfare and this and that, and, and they should get abortions and, and so forth. Then they began to realize that it was a deeply divisive issue, that they could, it, 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 they, and, they, and they search for divisive issues. Oh, Parenti, stop being so cynical, paranoid, conspiratorial. No, no, they do. They call it that, too. They call them wedge issues. How they can cut in and take a piece of your constituency and win support. And that's what they did. They discovered that uh, it's a lifestyle issue, that many middle Americans resented the new liberality, the sexual liberality, the idea that women could have birth control, that they could have sex without the responsibilities of pregnancy, or when they get pregnant, they can get an abortion, and that sort of thing. Catholic, uh, Catholics who were heavily democratic voters in those days, uh, they felt strongly against abortion, and as did uh, poor white Southern fundamentalists. So abortion suddenly became a holy crusade. Suddenly these people were getting up and talking about their concern for human life in the womb. They're, 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 you know, they just say about Ronald Reagan, he was concerned about human life for the first nine months. After that, he cut the women's infant children feeding programs, he cut you know, uh, uh, family assistance, he cut school funds and all that. He didn't give a care about human life once, once the fetus was born. Only when it was in the mother, then it was a sacred, hypocritical issue. Um, Here's another one, family values. Family values, they found that people were concerned. Family values is in contrast to some of the things you see on TV, like Sex in the City, or some of those other shows where people just seem to be living lives of libertines and uh, living very well indeed, too, and not raising children and not showing, uh, not with their noses to the grindstone the way we are. And you look at the family value proponents, Newt Gingrich, who divorced his wife to marry his secretary, who he, his, who he had been already 
doing and, 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 and comes to his wife on her bed, hospital bed, you remember that? She had cancer to get her to sign the divorce papers. There's your family values guy. And, and, some, and some time later, about six months later, it was reported in the paper, this big column. Imagine if it had been a Kennedy or a liberal or a progressive, but that big, it said she had to go to her church for support, for support for her and her children, for his children too. So these are the family value guys. They're the biggest bunch of, they're the biggest bunch of hypocrites there are. Um, William Bennett, remember William Bennett, Mr. Preacher? He preaches, he's always Mr. Values, he's always, you see there's something wrong with this microphone, isn't there? Oh man. It's dead. It's gone. No. A piece of tape where? That's not the button. I don't think that's the button. I'm going to have to talk like that. You see? This is, when they check the sound, they go like that. Checking, checking, checking. Yeah, this works. This plays fine. But nobody, nobody stands like this and talks. Even there, it's, getting, it's slipping away. All right. Family values. William Bennett. William Bennett constantly preached to us, constantly, tirelessly, annoyingly preached to us about self-control, self-commitment, self-development, self-reliance, about uh, sobriety, that this is a, a society of self-indulgence and, and people and, and educators and all that should learn discipline and all this. It turns out what? He was a gambling addict. He, 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 he lost $9 million in Vegas. He was those high rollers. You ever go to Vegas? I, I like Vegas, I must confess. I have friends there, I visit them once in a while. And I also speak at the local community college. So, but you go in, in some of the casinos you have the high roller, it's a separate section. You go up a couple of steps, it's got a little banister, and you can see these guys in there. And you can't get in that game Unless, like, you're, you're, you're open, you're ponying up a thousand, you're f opening your first, your lowest minimum is a thousand dollars a roll or, or something like that. And people sit there, and you know what those high rollers are known as? And William Bennett was one of them. You know what they're known as? Losers. That was the term used. <laughs> Losers. And, they, and he lost nine million dollars. This is the family values guy. Um, Dan Burton, Republican of Indiana, is my favorite. Dan Burton was a heavily family values guy. He fought against legal abortion. He fought against all sorts of things, gay marriages. He, he fought for the, the, uh, the Christian family, he called it. Family values. He had a wife, he had three kids, and he also had a payroll with a lot of other young ladies on the payroll whose jobs and tasks were very hard to define or trace. Uh, one of them, in fact, he set up in a house back in his area, back in Indiana, which he said was his home office, although it was outside his district. And he would, and he would uh, so he had, these, he had these women in his pay who um, helped him with his, I mean, family value. I mean, he was a real, real pater familias, uh, Dan Burton. I mean, the whole staff was one big happy family here, it seemed like. Um, and about the time Burton's story, but he's still in Congress, by the way. He's still in Congress. They said in 
the hypocrisy is exposed, but they're still there. There's a, there's a double, double standard there. If you're a conservative, you can get away with much more, usually. Um, then the story about that time came out that there were male prostitutes in, uh, um, paying visits to congressmen on Capitol Hill. Male prostitutes, the different congressmen were indulging with male prostitutes. When I heard that story, I was shocked. I was, I was disgusted and repelled. I mean, I, it, really, it really lowered my opinion of male prostitutes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Who are, after all, hardworking guys, I mean. Okay, I mustn't move, all right. Um, here's, another, here's another great family values guy, John Fund. Anybody remember John Fund, know him? He was a right-wing editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal. You know, the Wall Street Journal is like an old-fashioned paper where it says you gotta be objective and balanced in your news, and sometimes you get some remarkable stories in the news, but you can say and do whatever you want in the editorial. And their editorials are so right-wing, they are really as bad as any, um, as bad as any uh, fucks uh, network is. Did I pronounce that one right? <laughs> you know, Rupert Murdoch's fucks news network? As bad as any, as anyone, as, as bad as that one. Um, so John Fun was one of these right-wing editorial writers. He was a ghost writer for Rush Limbaugh's first bestseller. He wrote, he wrote his book. He was a longtime promoter of family values. He went around talking about it. He was arrested for beating up his fiancée, Morgan Pillsbury, from the Pillsbury family, money. That's why the story made it in the press. He had been pressuring her to get an abortion. Family value guy, anti-abortion, sacred life of the fetus, you know? A, um, a fertilized ovum is, is a life just as much as the adult woman who's carrying it, or, 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 or adolescent woman who's carrying it. And, and he not only pressured her to get an abortion, he had been sexually involved with Morgan Pillsbury's mother. Family man, family, all in the family. Those are, those are family values in action. Do you remember George Roach of Hillsdale College? That's the one that sends out all these right-wing statements. They always have these right-wing speaking agendas. George Roach was, he always got up and talked about, it, it's a Christian college. It's the only one in America that does not accept federal funds because federal funds come with an attachment of uh, equal opportunity, you know, uh, no racial considerations and all that sort of thing. And all that. Since they refuse the government telling them what to do, they have this. So they've got this uh, uh, right-wing conservative Hillsdale College and always, they, they always have uh, people who come in and talk about decency and and family values and uh, civility. And, and George Roach was, as president of the college, was a great propagator of that until he had to resign because his daughter-in-law, who he had been having sex with regularly, his son's wife, he'd been sleeping with his son's wife, and she was now found dead, shot through the head, uh, declared a suicide, although last I heard the police were investigating and they, had, they were questioning George Roach's son as a suspect murderer. I never was able, I went on the internet, I checked, look, I can't even find anything. Do you know, George Roach just died. Do you know what the Hillsdale did? They, did, they put a whole 
thing up and did a whole obit on him about what a great, beautiful guy. Never mentioned this. Never oh, by the way, he did, ha he did have to resign Hillsdale. He did have... No, I haven't touched this microphone, and now this sounds good. Well, I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. I'm not. The second tactic of, um, of reactionaries is to... Let me just see if this one is still alive. It might be alive. The second tactic is the second tactic of conservatives is pseudo populism. That is, they literally hijack class issues. They talk about the liberal latte elites, uh, you know, and those people versus honest, regular folks. So they literally use a left-wing populist idiom, and they're using it. Uh, they use it. Uh, Tommy Frank, Tom Frank was written about this. Thomas Frank uh, in Kansas gives the example of that happening. Those, 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 uh, those elites, those, um, those intellectuals who look down on you regular folk and all that, well, we, the Republican Party, speaks for the ordinary, regular, middle Americans, you know. Um, so they conjure up a class struggle, not only in terms of, but only, I should say, but only in terms of lifestyle issues. Um, the Democrats, they say, they speak for the intellectual snobs, the media elites, the alternative lifestyle people, the gays, the feminists, uh, irresponsible uh, uh, and dangerous elements in the minorities, and so forth and so on. Um, a bolder variation of this pseudo-class struggle by the reactionaries is to employ outright lies about economic issues. That's the simplest way. And this goes back, I mean, from Nelson Rockefeller to George Bush Jr. today, uh, you could see that uh, outright lies. We want to cut your taxes. How many people here have seen a, a dramatic decrease in their federal income taxes since George Bush is in? He talks about how much he's, well, you're not in the right bracket, I think. If you're up in that fraction of 1%, you would have seen very substantial increases. But you see, he doesn't say that. Outright lies. We're cutting your taxes. The Democrats just want to tax you, tax you, tax you. And meanwhile, they're taxing. Uh, <clears throat> we're for working families. Yeah, and they cut assistance to family. Family assistance programs have been cut. Uh, you get a better deal from us, less inflation, less wild spending of your tax dollar. These are all false, all false. There have been record deficits record deficits, inflation is there, real wages are not keeping up, wages are not keeping up with inflation in the last five years. NPR, NPR radio, I heard this a statement made by a commentator not a few years ago, quote, if you remove fuel, food, and housing from the equation, there has been very little inflation in recent years. <laughs> You remove a few more things, and it, inflation disappears altogether. 
But that's a very interesting mode of analysis, isn't it? I mean, how far can you carry that? Can you apply that in other areas, that kind of mode of analysis? Uh, if you don't count the last 15 years, none of us have aged that much. <laughs> another, another technique is to conjure external enemies and threats that to further distract the populace away from class issues. 9-11 was a godsend. 9-11 was almost too perfect. 9-11 might lead one to entertain certain suspicions. We might just wonder about things. Um, now whether you have a conspiracy theory about 9-11 of the kind that was put out by the media and the White House, a conspiracy theory that says that some Saudi Arabian young men hijacked these planes and had planned to drive them into the white. That's a conspiracy. That's what conspiracy means. To collude together to commit some illegal act by illegal means or whatever like that. Either you have, uh, whether you have that conspiracy theory or you have the, another conspiracy theory that it was an inside job, a false flag operation like Tonkin Bay or uh, <clears throat> the like, the sinking of the main, whatever to create a casus belli and an international crisis and to get the people excited, frightened, and rallying around you, uh, you must allow that 9-11 did serve the reactionaries so very well. And in their, in their plan, in their secret, secret, secret plan called Rebuilding America's Defenses, I am only one of about 11 million people who got hold of this plan. It's right there on the internet. You know, when people say to you, what do you got, a conspiracy? I said, no, what, what conspiracy? Well, well, you're ascribing to them these intent. I said, I'm not ascribing anything to them. It's on the goddamn internet. It goes to Project for a New American Century, and they published a thing, and they said, the American people are not going to go along with an agenda of perpetual war as we want, an agenda of global wars and such, to, so that the U.S. can maintain a super, uh, superpower position unless they are driven into it by some cata catastrophic uh, danger like Pearl Harbor. They said that. Well, well, you must allow that it served the reactionaries very well. And Project for a New American Century is not just some obscure group. You know who are, you know who are members of it? Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Cohn, Elliot Abrams, uh, Jeb Bush, Richard Pearl, all the people you love. <laughs> and they are now, they were now in power. Well, at the very least, I would say this, at the very least, if you don't want to get into all the 9-11 stuff, at the very least, you've got to say that the evidence very strongly suggests that the administration knew something was up. What I just said, I realize as I said it, is an incorrect statement. It doesn't suggest, it states explicitly the August 6th memo that the CIA sent to the White House stated explicitly that a terrorist attack of very serious scope was coming. 
And you don't remember Bush, you remember Bush's response? I saw him, I listened to him on TV. He said, yeah, they told us there would be an attack, but they didn't say when or where or how or why. Uh, excuse me, are you the president or something? So what, so you went to Texas for vacation? Are you the president or something? Do you, you only act when it's served to you on a platter and the exact time and date with photographs and whatever else is provided? Don't you start doing things? Don't you put people on alert? Don't you at least even, at least tell the airlines? And they didn't, it didn't even alert the airlines, didn't even alert airports that there might be something coming up. And as a matter of fact, they did tell them where, when, how, to some degree. They said when, soon. They said how, it would consist, it would involve hijacking passenger planes, they said where major metropolitan areas, and they even said who. They said Al-Qaeda, whatever Al-Qaeda is. Where is Al-Qaeda these days? <laughs> Why aren't they? That's the real mystery. Why aren't they doing more of these things? It's an odd thing, isn't it? Funded by the CIA. Isn't it? The conjuring of external threat also allows for a war against Iraq. I say allows for because, again, Project for New American Century had targeted Iraq and said we should invade and occupy Iraq. That was something that the Bush Jr. administration was dedicated upon, uh, uh, talked about doing and wanted to do before 9-11. But Iraq is a disaster of policy. Iraq, you can't say that helps the interests of the empire. Well, is it really entirely a disaster for the guys at the top? Multi-billion dollar contracts to Halliburton, Bechtel, and over a hundred other corporations, an immense source of profit and accumulation for corporate America, a single greatest bonanza um, for corporate America in generations, or since the last war maybe, I don't know, all compliments of the U.S. taxpayer. Iraq, the war, also rallied public opinion around the flag. This was a guy who was already down to 45% ratings uh, 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 September, on September 10, 2001. His, his ratings were like down here. Um, and suddenly public opinion rallies went up, support for him was up at 90% or 80%, whatever. Uh, rallying around the flag, your country is under siege, you're an American, patriotic, we're gonna win, we're gonna survive, we're gonna fight. And that flag is wrapped around the president. So you conjure up external threat, support our troops, defend our homeland, and you hand over more and more power to the executive uh, component of the state. Iraq also issues in the whole era of perpetual war. They use that term. Not a president who says we should long for peace, we should explore to see how we can propagate peace, but a president who talks about war. Do you recall his speech at, at, at Annapolis graduation this past spring when he said to the midshipmen, he said, I, I wish I'd, I'd written the speech down, but I thought of this on the plane coming over. But um, 
He talked, he, he just was so up. He was saying, our technology, our, our defense, our military technology is getting better and better. Future wars are going to be fought with more precision, uh, fewer casualties for us and fewer casualties for the, for the civilians, and with greater success and, and more lethal power. Uh, and, you know, like, whoopee for war. He's, he keeps, he keeps refer referring to future wars. When he started the war against Afghanistan, he said, this is the first war of the 21st century. The first war, like, he's anticipating a whole series of wars. Uh, and he would. If he didn't, if the insurgency in Iraq didn't have them pinned down and with their backs to the wall now, they would be in Iran by now. They would have, they would have taken Syria by now. Um, and war means record profits, record contracts, record military budgets. He's increased, he's expanded the military spending by some 50%. That's an incredible climb. War prevented Iraq from converting its reserve currency from dollars to euros, which Saddam Hussein was threatening to do. If nations no longer, accept, no longer accept the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, that could bring disaster for U.S. trade and imports and for the dollar itself. The U.S. will be stuck with hundreds of billions of these paper dollars that nobody wants anymore. This could bring everything down. Iraq's economy has been totally privatized, except for oil, which is still nominally government-owned, but the oil is being taken out by British and U.S. companies. Um, the economy under Saddam Hussein was totally state-owned. In fact, Donald Rumsfeld used a very, uh, very interesting term. I was amused by it. He said, it's a Stalinist economy. Stalinist, see that? So we're fighting Stalinism in Iraq. The U.S. had a commission set up before, before the invasion of Iraq, before February and March 2003. They had a commission set up expressly to privatize the Iraqi economy. That was in 2002. That is a central goal of the global free market empire, to take any country that is self-defining, self-developing in any way, and turn it into a totally privatized, totally deregulated component of the free market global system. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't mean they've privatized the economy, that they've gone in and built a consumer economy. I mean, you don't have McDonald's and uh, Starbucks in Iraq now. I mean, you don't even have, you don't even have uh, utilities, private utilities going on. I mean, the whole thing is a shambles. So they haven't built the alternative economy, but they destroyed they haven't built the, the, the privatized economy, but they destroyed this alternative one. And any country that tries to use its land, labor, resources, and markets in outside of the global free market system is going to be targeted. And its leaders will be told, will be called uh, thugs and will be called uh, uh, enemies of the U.S. and hostile to us and all that. Any country does that and, uh, and they will be targeted. And the people, in their fear, will rally around um, their leaders to save them. U.S. intervention in Iraq also wiped out all the oil contracts with Russia. 
that Saddam Hussein had set up with Russia, China, France, Italy, and a few other countries. The U.S. and the British are getting the oil. Seems like old times, like 1957 again. They're only taking out about half as much as they could potentially get, and some of that is because the oil lines get, get, get blown up and, you know, and that sort of thing. But they're still getting it. They're getting it. And by the way, they're not, even, they're not even marketing much of that. They're keeping it off the market. That's often one of the things they want to do. Keep it off the market. Keep the oil supply scarce. Keep the prices up. Prices now, as you know, are down, and they're guaranteed to stay down at least until November 7th. Um, elect election day, after election day, you can hold on to your wallet again. And finally, the occupation of Iraq, had it gone right, it would have established a strategic place in the Middle East. It would have wiped out, it, it did wipe out one of Israel's potential opponents. I say potential because uh, Saddam Hussein, who was a ruthless killer and a murderer and, uh, and was put in by the CIA, a fact that the media has total amnesia about, everybody in public life has total amnesia, that Saddam Hussein was CIA for most, during the most murderous, torturous, brutal part of his career, he was working for the CIA. But, not a word of that, not a word of that, yeah. Um, but he also, he also showed sympathy for the Palestinians and all that, and probably gave them funds and all that. And when I was in Baghdad, I stayed at the palace, uh, what's it called, Hotel Palestine. So um, that's all gone. And Iraq, you know, Iraq is a, is a hub if you look at the map. It borders, it borders the most important countries in that area, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, uh, right there. You, you got the control of that. You got a lot of leverage and you got a lot of points, uh, attack points or whatever. Now all of that explains why the U.S. went into Iraq, but not why they're staying. I mean, I think some of it does explain why they're staying. I just had this discussion with my son today. He just got back from Afghanistan. He said, well, why are they staying? And now that I think about it, well, that does, because the contracts are still coming in, the military spending is still coming in, and all that sort of thing. But the other point is they really are stuck now. They are faced with a policy that is failing, failing desperately. They're caught, but the costs are not that great. The political costs are not that great, really. It's still a rallying point. It's still their theme, which is terrorism, and the only reason we're not getting attacked now is because we're still pursuing it there. We've got to stay the course. They're going to hang on indefinitely. There's no massive peace movement and resistance. They're losing 10, 12 soldiers a week. Richard Nixon lost 110 a week. That's when it was a problem. And there were, and there were hundreds of thousands of people out on the street. Look at Afghanistan. It's an entirely a, a failure as an undertaking. It is really done. And you remember the, the Republicans, just when they had that debate in the Senate about getting out of Iraq, one, one after the other on message, we mustn't cut and run, we mustn't cut and run, we can't tuck our tail between our legs and run, we can't cut. Well, that's what he's doing, that's what George Bush today is doing in Afghanistan. He's cutting and running. He cut the number of troops in Afghanistan. He just yesterday, day before yesterday, took 12,000 American troops in Afghanistan and put them directly under NATO command. Now, how often, how often does, a, does a U.S. commander, a U.S. president do that? 
directly, not coordinated with NATO, not working with in there, not the prime force, but under NATO non-American command. So, you know, let the wimpy Europeans take the rap if this whole thing goes down the tubes. Every development project in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is ended. There's nothing they're doing. There's zero security. Zero. They, they, and the Taliban are resurging all over the place. So in both those countries, force and violence has made things worse and more horrible than ever. Um, the NATO troops, my son who just got back from Afghanistan, as I say, the, the, the NATO troops, most of them, are staying in their barricades, um, <clears throat> and not really patrolling. So I think I've gone on much too long, haven't I? Um, oh, all right, well, I just got too much here, I realize now. What we're seeing over the last 30 years is a really reactionary campaign to roll back the gains of the 20th century. Um, they preach the ideology of plutocracy, which is the ideology of the free market, that the free market will bring you all sorts of blessings. The goal is to elevate corporate property rights to a level above all other human rights, and they do that with free trade, that anything you try to do for the economy, for the environment, for this, for people, protections, regulations, all that, if that violates free trade treaties, then, it, then it's out. So the property investment right is being elevated to an unanswerable status. They made liberal a dirty word. Um, They, they, um, they developed an ideological reactionary mass media networks, C CBN, Fox, a hundred of right-wing radio talk shows every week. And those talk shows, those politicians, these leaders, they're always on message. They always have the polemical point and they're driving it home. You don't see that, you don't see that among the moderates. The moderates are too busy trying to show that they're moderate and balanced and they're not pushing too hard. Larry, you don't see, you see it on Bill O'Reilly. That guy, any issue that comes up, he is hitting and hitting and hitting home his view of the world. He has a whole Weltanschauung, a whole view of the world and he is driving that home. And every one of these guys are, do, are doing that. Uh, you don't see that on Larry King. Larry King, he's, what is he busy doing? Showing off his suspenders and interviewing <laughs> this person and doing a little fluff here and a little fluff there. And, and uh, Can you honestly say what his politics are, if he even has any? He does have politics. He had Warren Beatty on one day and he said, what's, your, what's the favorite movie you, you have? What's your favorite movie of all the ones you made? And Beatty said, Reds. And Larry King looked at him and said, we'll break for a commercial. <laughs> no, that's what I, I've called that when I've done that. Uh, I, I have a, a media techniques of control. I call that the non-follow-up. The guy says something, you, you cut. You turn to the, next, the other person on the panel, or you break for a commercial, and you never go back to that issue. So, that's amazing. Wow, that's amazing. Um, they've learned to enlist religion, homophobia, sexism, and bigotry to distract the populace from class issues and substance of democracy. Okay, it doesn't look good now to be an out-and-out -out bigot. You can't go out and say, those niggers, right? You can't say that. This isn't 1940 Alabama anymore. But you've got other coded ways you can talk about. Quotas and affirmative action and uh, 
inner city crime and this and that. And, and there are these buzzwords that, that, that get out there. Um, they're stealing elections. They, I, they stole the 20, 2004 election, even bigger than the 2000 election. I have an article on that if you want it. I'll be happy to email it to you. It'll be out in this new book that I'm, that I'm doing called Contrary Notions. Um, but there's been a lot of good writing on this done by people like uh, Harvey Wasserman and Bob Fatrakis and uh, Steve Freeman and, um, and um, Martin Crispin Miller. Is it Martin? Mark. Mark Crispin Miller. Uh, it's incredible what they've done. Suppressing voter registration rolls, sabotaging voter stations, rigging uh, uh, accounts with touchscreen voting machines. In the state of Nevada, I was telling some friends today, in the state of Nevada, John Kerry lost every county that had touchstone, uh, touchscreen uh, voting machines. Every county and um, every one of those counties. Could you open a, a door over there, please? Open the door, because it's, it's sweltering hot in here. Every one of those counties, it correlated with nothing else, not income, ethnicity, past voting patterns, it didn't, the only thing it correlated with was these voting machines. Um, um, they're rigging it and they're suppressing the vote right today, just yesterday, just, just uh, this past week, the House passed a law uh, requiring proof of citizenship if you're gonna vote. Well, you know, low-income people, elderly, others, a lot of us don't have, unless you have a passport, or unless you can find your birth certificate somewhere, um, this is another thing. It's a constant struggle to get the vote. And they do this, again, under one of these false issues, that burning issue of voter fraud. Don't you know, how many of you know of at least seven or eight people who have fraudulently gone and vote where they weren't supposed to vote and were not qualified to vote? Raise your hands. Come on. Ah, oh, bunch of, bunch of lefties or something. Um, <laughs> Cameras, please note, no hands went up. Okay. <clears throat> what we need to do, and let me end here, is become increasingly aware of what is happening, increasingly link events to polemical points, see the political dimensions, be on message ourselves, rather than diluting the message, and I'm always, all my life, I've had people sidle up to me telling me to dilute the message, especially when I was in academia. Oh, dilute your message. Say less so that you'll reach more people or, you know, you won't get too much flack and all that. No, don't dilute your message. Press it with militancy, uh, with dedication. Cross all those lines. Cross those parameters of respectable opinion into uh, unrespectable, unrespectable opinion. <clears throat> the major media pretty much belong to conservative forces. Let me prove that by just a question. Did everything, did, the things I said today about imperialism and class, have you ever heard any of that on CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox News Network? <laughs> or any of the other fucks that were in, 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 involved in the media, in, in mainstream media? Have you ever? Yet reactionaries, reactionaries do believe that the media are liberal. 
First, that's a way of keeping the media on the defensive. Keep accusing them of being liberally biased, that keeps them on the defensive, and they're constantly leaning over, like all liberals are doing, sucking up to the conservative. Oh, you know, oh, 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 no, no. Oh, well, let's hear from you. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, you got something in what you're saying. You never hear those other guys saying that to us. And second, they really do feel that way at times because the news does report things that are disturbing to them, like the war in Iraq and all that. Because the problem is, that reality is radical. So when the news gets a little piece of reality right, these guys on the far right see that as liberal propaganda. Why do you have to discuss that? Why do you have to have that? Why do you have to report to all of these, uh, these, these American soldiers who are being killed in, in Iraq? Do you see reports of the American soldiers who were killed in Iraq on Fox? No. They, don't, they love the soldiers, they support the soldiers, but they won't report how many have been killed or maimed and all that. Why, why do you want to do that, liberal media? You want to do that because you want to provoke, because you want to propagandize, and you want to make George Bush look bad. You see, it's a liberal media. You're not being objective by reporting those things. And they convince themselves, quite honestly, of this. But see, it really is true that reality is radical. It really is true that real wages have remained flat or declined. That's not a, a liberal or leftist argument or polemic, that's a fact. But when you report it, they see you as polemicizing and not being objective and trying to badmouth the economy and drag it down. It really is true that the major tax cuts went to the super rich. Big cuts for the big people and little cuts for the little people, if any. It really is true that global warming is happening. They finally have to, finally have to acknowledge it or ignore it. But again, they see you, what, what is all this global warming? What is it all about? What are, you, what are you distracting people with that concern for? You see, they conjure up fears and threats in us, but they themselves are not afraid of the things they should really be afraid of, which really are dangers. It really is true that 45% of Americans do not have health insurance. And if you don't have a health insurance and you can't pay for health insurance, that means you can't even afford a doctor. And if you can't afford a doctor when you're ill, you have real problems and real troubles. And one could go on. So we mustn't retreat from that message. Um, let's, so let's educate ourselves, propagate our message, uh, organize, agitate with uncompromising militancy. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do a Q&A. My voice has just gone out. So, I mean, for five bucks, what do you want? But he is going to sign books. I will sign books, yeah. Thank you, Michael. We have some cards on the seats for you to fill out, if you don't mind, to let us know your name and your phone number and your email address. We want to keep in touch with you. And Activist San Diego website is a great place to go to find out what's going on. You want to say something? Donnie's going to come up and say something. 
there were a few people who came in late and didn't, or came in early and didn't give any donations, and we would appreciate if everybody did that. Yeah, I just want to say um, Activist San Diego sponsored this event, and we appreciate everyone's support. And go to our website. This website is set up actually so that the community itself can post their own event so that we don't have to do it for you. So if you're having a potluck, if you're having a demonstration, um, or another meeting with, where you have speakers, you can go to our website and register. It's free. There's no, you know, you can remain anonymous if you want to. And you can register on our website and then post your own event. And then you can re-edit your event and log in with the same username and password each time. We also have a newsletter that goes out to, I believe it's a couple thousand people right now, weekly. And um, we appreciate your support. And thank you for coming out, too. Mm -hmm.